0: okay guys leviticus chapter 17 tonight if you're not there already leviticus 17 i'm going to pray and uh, we're going to jump in with both feet father we thank you um just so blessed by our time of worship and waiting on you how good it is for us to just come into this place like a shelter from the storm and, and, and be able to worship you and be able to hear the word of God and just wait on you and be with our family and we're very grateful Lord we don't take it for granted as much as we used to so thank you we pray for your blessing on this time that your word would speak with power to our souls and change us from the inside out feed us we ask this in Jesus name and all God's people said amen don't you love coming to church i don't know about you but i love coming to a place where i can just hear truth amen we get bombarded this is not part of the sermon this is just an aside it's a freebie freebie, yeah (laughs) we just get bombarded with narratives and this and news and things and and opinions and i just don't know about you guys but i just love being able to come and just having my eyes turned back up to God, remembering He's in control, hearing the truth of God's Word, everything kind of simmers down, goes back into perspective, and I'm just set aright. <laughs> and so, man, I'm just stoked to be here. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, and we have an interesting chapter tonight. It's not a long chapter, but it's an important one, chapter 17. And um, yeah, so let's just jump into it. One of the, I guess I wanted to say this, though, before I start actually into it um sometimes right before i teach or leading up to a teaching i'll kind of imagine myself sitting in the congregation listening to me teach as one who is like a brand new believer in jesus or not a believer at all in jesus and i try to imagine like would i understand a thing i'm saying (laughs) because you know we have to sometimes Remember, as Christians that have been in the church a long time, gone through a lot of Bible studies, we start talking differently than everybody else. We, we start using words and phrases and terminology that honestly, the like, garden variety person out in the world's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It just sounds loony. And one of those, the reason I'm thinking about that is because tonight, the focus is on Blood. And I just imagine, you know, a new Christian or, a, you know, a non-Christian coming to church and just wondering, what is the dang fascination with Christians and blood? They sing about blood. They thank God for the blood. They call God a lamb who shed his blood. They, you know, they, they, they talk about blood like with a smile on their face. What is the deal with blood? And Christianity has definitely been accused of being a bloody, quote-unquote, religion, Uh, I did a quick search on my Logos program and I think like something like 425 times in the Bible, the word blood comes up. And I think there's like 50 in Leviticus alone. So I mean, we're just getting concentrated version of it. But the reality is guys, blood is central to what we believe as Christians. And the reason I bring it up is because this chapter helps us get a real foundation why that is it doesn't give the full thing but this will help unravel maybe you've wondered about this this helps you helps us understand why blood is so important and why we talk about it why why we sing about it and so this will help you understand and help you to talk to your friends about it as well so kind of keep that in mind Um, as we get into chapter 17 um, we actually are beginning the second and last major section of leviticus Uh, Scholars have divided Leviticus basically into two halves. Not equal halves, but two parts. The first part, going through chapter 16, uh, would deal with sacrifice. The second part, 17 through 27, deals with separation. The first part, chapter 1 through 16, is emphasizing approach and worship. The second part, 17 through 27, is dealing more with the walk of holiness, And both of these sections, sacrifice, worship, separation, living holy, they all kind of fall under a bigger umbrella of God's holiness. God's presence was right there in the middle of the camp of the Jews at this time. They're seeing his Shekinah glory every day and every night. And God is communicating these truths to the Levites to communicate to everybody else this is how I will accept your approach and worship to me and this is how I want you to live separated to me. Does that make sense? We've been talking about that a lot but that's kind of the broad stroke. We're entering in now to that second stage. Now this chapter in particular has basically two laws that we're gonna look at or two uh, regulations. Both have to do with blood for your notes and I, and I know you're all taking copious notes. Number one, the first regulation through verse uh, 9, is dealing with um, laws concerning the shedding of blood. Laws concerning the shedding of blood. And then the second regulation, verses 10 through 16, are going to deal with laws about eating blood. And that will meet, we'll get some ex- explanation on that. In fact, um, there's a little bit of a pattern. We're going to see God's going to the, give them the regulation and then the explanation. And then he'll give the regulation, and then he'll give the explanation. So we're just gonna follow that pattern, go straight through. Let's look at this, chapter 17, verse one. This is the first law concerning the shedding of blood. The regulation is from verses one through four. The explanation is five through nine. One through four. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded, if any of my house uh, excuse me, if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood, guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. So before we explain the why, let's look at the what. What is God basically saying? Um, Real simply, what he's basically saying is this, that no Israelite, listen, no Israelite was allowed to kill an animal inside the camp, outside the camp, unless they brought it to the priest and were using it as an offering to God. Now think about that for a minute. What What are the connotations of that? That means they couldn't kill one of their herd to just have lamb chops for the weekend they couldn't go hunting they could only if they were going to kill an animal it had to be for the sole purpose of taking it to the priest at the tabernacle for an offering now a little note about this um, that didn't stay the protocol all the way through this part of the regulation was temporary in fact if you you might jot this down deuteronomy 12 20 through 28 once they got into the land he clearly says as long as it's kosher eat whatever you want like whatever animal you want to kill you can eat it but for the time being um they were only allowed to kill an animal and spill its blood if they were going to bring it to the tabernacle um, as a sacrifice um the other thing i want you to notice about that is um if they didn't do that here's the consequence i think it was in verse four the people would be cut off or let me read it again actually it says um, blah, 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 de, blah, 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 "Blah blah blah." He has the uh, that man has shall be cut off from among his people so nobody really knows exactly what that means there's all this debate about it i don't really don't know don't honestly care all that much but it was severe Three possibilities it could have been like um, a judicial execution like they're brought before a court and it's like death sentence could have been excommunication where they just weren't allowed to be among the people or could be a divine judgment of some kind i lean towards that one and i'll show you why later again it's not that big of a deal but that's the first regulation pretty simple not allowed to kill an animal shed its blood unless you're taking it to the tabernacle and giving it to the priest as an offering to the lord if not heavy consequences now he gives us the why he gives us the explanation look at verse five this is to the end that the people of israel may bring their sacrifices that they may sacrifice in the open field that they may bring them to the lord to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and, the burnt, and burn the fat excuse me, for a pleasing aroma uh, to the Lord. Verse 7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Verse eight, and you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of their strangers or sojourn, who are sojourning among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So the explanation is basically twofold. Um. The first one if you'll notice it says in verse seven or verse five it's to the end that the people of israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field that they may bring them to the lord at the entrance of the tent now i know this is not like super exciting information but trust me when i tell you it's actually important the first thing that god was saying is is look um the reason you're going to do this is because i want there to be one specific place that offerings are made. One specific place. In other words, they could have been like, Well, I know we're supposed to bring our offering to the tabernacle, but it's way over there. I can see the smoke, but I don't want to walk. I just want to do it. Why can't I just do it my own way? Like in my backyard. And like my campground is my sanctuary. You know, or why can't I do it? Why does it have to be so narrow-minded? To do it at the tab. But God is basically saying, No, there is going to be one place not a bunch of places not wherever you feel like it one place that you're allowed to bring your offerings and that's going to be the tabernacle now this is the beginning of what would develop later in Deuteronomy um in fact I at a quick glance I jot down Deuteronomy 12 Deuteronomy 14 15 16 17 23 and 26 and other places where Moses basically says when you get into the land that is the land of promise Um, you will take your offerings or whatever, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, to the place that I will choose. God basically prophesied, I'm going to pick a spot in the land and that's going to be the place and the only place that you will bring your sacrifices. Now we know that developed into Jerusalem, Mount Zion, right? And that at the temple that was eventually built was the only place that sacrifices were ever made. You know, sometimes if you ever have gone to Israel, you'll go to places up in the Galilee or whatever, and there'll be synagogues. Please understand, they did not offer sacrifices at synagogues. They prayed at synagogues. They read the Torah at synagogues. But the sacrifices were only done in one place, and that would be in Jerusalem. So again, he's establishing that. It's actually important. We'll talk more about it later. Little side note, by the way, if they weren't doing the sacrifices at the tabernacle, guess who wouldn't get to eat? The priests. The priests and their family. This was on a side note, another way of, of providing for the priests, the Levites, their families, because that was their source of of sustenance was when the priest or excuse me, a worshipper brought their meat, part of it went to God, part of it went to the priest and his family, part of it went back to the worshipper. So that was actually a built-in system to provide for the priest. So if they're circumventing that, the whole system kind of falls apart. Um so basically what I want you to remember for now is one place. You don't just get to do it wherever you want to do it. The second thing, this is, may have caught your attention. I ex- kind of accentuate, uh, um, emphasized it when I read it in verse 7. It's also verse 7 so that you shall no more, that means they have been doing it, sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. Well, clearly, you don't want to be sacrificing to goat demons. What in the world is that? Some translations say, anybody have a different translation than goat demons? Some say goat idols some say to devils what's another one okay the new mitch translation what do you i'm just kidding kidding. the idea there though is like um, an idol or some kind i think the best translation actually is the devils like these goat devils now what the world are they talking about here here's what you need to understand the children of israel are out of egypt right as a people they have been in Egypt for over 400 years Ezekiel 20 indicates that while Israel was in Egypt they became very Egyptian they offered sacrifices to Egyptian idols they started to live like Egyptians live and now that children of Israel are have been introduced to the one true and living God in a very dramatic fashion and they they are learning about that God and they're out of Egypt but not to be too cliché they might be out of egypt but egypt isn't necessarily out of them does that make sense and as we know from their history they have a propensity towards idol worship and evidently they were still kind of caught up in not only yeah god thing's cool but we're also going to hold on to our, our goat demon worship thing now a lot of that idol worship i don't know i've been to india i've seen i've seen the shops where they're making the gods that they worship it's just it's mind-blowing you have to understand a lot of it is steeped in superstition and fear and i'm just doing this ritual so that i get good luck and i have that thing on my house and i bow down to it before i go in or that one goes on by my wall to scare the bad demons away and it's very much ingrained into their culture and fear-based and superstition and so i'm not saying that you know they maybe didn't even totally understand what they were doing but god was saying look here's how i look at it when you are sacrificing to another idol that's like whoring after that aisle. That's, that's, I mean, that's kind of graphic language. Like, you don't have to guess what that means. God looked at it as spiritual infidelity. That's how we looked at it. Now, How many of you would be okay with like, well, I'm married, but yeah, my wife, my husband, they still they have a few flings on the side. How many of you would be like, that's fine. i have to be careful asking that in this culture. Hopefully no one in this room would be fine with that. Um there's no way and that's how god looked at it um, i was going to talk a lot a little bit more about the idol worship thing but we shouldn't be too i'm not going to go too far but we shouldn't be too surprised that they still were kind of bent i mean towards idol worship you might be like how could they yeah, god was right there but well, how many of us guys got saved how many of your idols just all went away the next day <laughs> Or as time went on, you didn't realize like, oh, there's some idols in my heart. You see, idol doesn't have to be a little statue. Ezekiel talks about the idols in our heart. I think Tim Keller was the one who put it this way, that our hearts are idol-making machines. And we'll make an idol out of anything. You see, anything that begins to be your master passion, anything that begins to be where you draw your life from, that starts getting all your attention, that you start putting your security in or your identity in, that quickly can become an idol. And, and you and I don't have to search too hard in our own lives that after we got saved, that the Holy Spirit was able to put his finger on some idols in our heart. And sometimes they look like money and sometimes they look like um, my need to be liked or they my need to look fit or my need to have money or my need to be respected or my need. And a lot of those things are not bad things. They're just not God. And so if we elevate them above God, that's where they become an idol. Amen? Another little thing about this, he, he talks about sacrificing to demons. You know, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 when there was the whole issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. You guys remember that? Pastor Steve did a great job working through that text. He, Paul makes it really clear there's no such thing as other gods. There are no other idols. They're bowing down to wood statues. But what did he say? But there's a demonic influence behind it. It's not that that wooden thing is actually another god. There are no other gods, but there is a demonic force behind it, whether it's Calcian, some idol, sitting you know, physically or in the New Age movement or some other thing. Like, there's a demonic force behind those things to get you to go a-whoring after other gods whatever it may be. So um, all that to say is that we shouldn't be too surprised that they were still struggling with idol worship fresh out of Egypt because we have too. Um, But the idea was is he is safeguarding them. He's saying, look, don't offer out in the field because you might be tempted to actually do this. And by clipping any sacrifices anywhere but at the temple, that just killed that whole thing, right? You couldn't be like, well, I'm I'm just cooking this to eat but secretly giving it to my goat demon god guy. Your neighbor would turn you in like, bro, you're not supposed to be killing anything anyway. So it was like God was safeguarding them. I kind of looked at it like this. I could be wrong. It's almost like God, our father, was just like putting some loving boundaries around them right now. Like, you're really susceptible to this. And it's not that I'm just trying to be a jerk. You just, you're kind of a blow it. And I'm gonna make it real easy for you. (laughs) How many of us parents do that for our kids, right? We put boundaries up we bring them along okay all that to say um, as we move on from the first regulation to the second regulation the main thing i want you to take away from this it's mentioned over and again they were not allowed to shed the blood of an animal just anywhere first of all they couldn't do it at all unless they were going to do it as a sacrifice secondly if it was a sacrifice it had to be in one place okay let's move on quickly verse 10 second regulation The regulation is in verse 10. The explanation is verses 11 to 16. Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or any of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and cut them off from among his people. Boom, pretty simple. God says, don't eat blood or I'm going to be really ticked. That's kind of the rule. Again, by the way, remember I mentioned there's three possibilities at least of what it means to have God uh, or have them cut off from among their people this is why I lean towards you can disagree doesn't matter I lean towards it being a divine thing because notice what it says God says I will set my face against that person who eats blood like I'm going to deal with them be that as it may it's pretty simple he basically says don't eat any blood and I can imagine you're sitting here thinking I don't know if this has a lot of application for me because I really am not all that tempted to eat blood. I have eaten blood. I've, I've got a, a good friend over in Russia who, who loves blood sausage. Anybody ever eaten blood sausage? It's disgusting. Now, by the way, you're like, He's, he ate blood. God's gonna, listen, keep in mind, we're not under the law. We're not under any of the law. We're not under any of the dietary laws. We are under grace. If you eat blood sausage, God is not gonna set his face against you. It's okay. I would just say this, it's just gross. Refrain. (laughs) But all that to say, he says, look, don't eat blood, and if you do, you're in big trouble. Now, the explanation is all important, okay? Because God's not just giving a rule willy-nilly. He's actually got a reason for saying it. So I'm gonna read the whole explanation, verse 11 through 16, and then we're gonna come back and, and focus on verse 11. For, and that's a reason word, because, you might say, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat any blood, and also of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them Who takes in hunting, or this would be later on, any beast or bird that uh, may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So when they do hunt, um, they're to drain the blood and then cover it in dirt. For or because the life of every creature is in its blood and the blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat of the blood of any creature for the life of the creature is in the blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself, this is ancient roadkill, or what is torn by beasts, whether it is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes, clothes bathe himself in water, and he will be unclean until the evening, and then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe uh, his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So God says, don't eat any blood. And then he gives the explanation. Let me just say this about this prohibition. The prohibition against eating blood, listen, was to protect the sanctity of what the blood stood for. Did you guys catch that? The the rule to not eat the blood was there to protect the sacredness and to give honor to what the blood stood for. So they, even though every culture around them, uh, everybody would eat the blood or mix it or whatever, they weren't to do that because they were to honor the blood for what it stood for. Now, what did it stand for? We looked at it several different times, but let me read to you verse 11 again. It says, because the life of the body or the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for the body that, um, and for it." is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Later on, he says, um, the blood is its life. Every creature, its blood is its life. And he just keeps saying that. Basically this, guys, what God is declaring is that blood equals life. That blood represents life. By the way, scientifically speaking, that's kind of true, isn't it? If you don't have any blood, you don't, live. If your blood's not circulating, you die. Um, it's the blood that modern science has discovered. It's the blood pumping through our body that's delivering all the oxygen and nutrients to our organs, to our tissues, and all of that. And if that flow stops or whatever, you die. I, I was doing a little blood research on this, and I, I stumbled upon a, a website for a, um, like a community blood, doning, blood donation what do you call those? Blood banks? Blood? Yeah, blood bank thing. Anywho, um, their whole, their whole like, motto was, it's all about life. Like they're trying to get you to donate blood. Like one pint of blood saves three lives. It's all about life. And that's true. It's all about life. Life is in the blood. Blood equals life. No blood, no life. You guys get it? So God was declaring that. Now, obviously, God is talking a little bit more than science. I want to read this so I get it right. But this is what I want us to understand: God is declaring, or it is declaring, that God has chosen. Listen, that blood is to be the ransom price for a life. What God is saying is, is that blood is the ransom price for a life. Makes sense. He said, I've given you the blood for the altar because why? Atonement is made, blood is made, or atonement is made through the blood. That's how atonement is made for life. So when you brought an animal and its blood was shed, it was acting as a substitution for your life. And as the blood was drained out of that animal and its life withered away, it was symbolic of the fact of that life was drained out and killed in place of your life and the price required to forgive sin, to make atonement, to cover sin is the high price of blood. Does that make sense? That's why it says, and we talked about atonement a lot last week, but that's why it says in Hebrews 10 that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for the sins of humans because it's not an equal trade. The blood of a goat, you take the, the life of a goat and it's dying for the life or for the sins of a human, but it's not an equal trade. Does that make sense? The wages of sin is death. You see, the problem is every one of us has sinned and our sin debt is life. We cannot afford to pay that. And so the whole point of this, guys, is you've already done the, done the math and put two and two together, but the whole point of this is that Jesus gave his blood, his life to atone for our sins. Amen? Amen. Jesus, every one of those animals that died sacrificially and substitutionally was a picture and a type of what Jesus would do once and for all when he was on the cross. And just think about that for a moment, not to be grotesque or gory, but just for a moment in your mind's eye, think about the whip of, the cat of nine tails on the back from the neck to the bottom of the thigh of Jesus, ripping his skin off, blood flying, eventually nailing him to a cross, pounding a crown of thorns into his skull, blood flowing down, blood flowing down, blood flowing down, eventually stabbing him in the side, blood and water coming out. It's because that blood is what paid for our sin. Amen? Amen. And that is why we can never, we have to be very careful about cheapening what Christ did on the cross. And by cheapening, I mean to suggest in any way there's some other thing that I can do to atone for my sin. Whether it's good works or money or anything like that, there's nothing that is powerful enough to wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? And so that's the point of all this. It's that the life was in the blood. Let me just read to you, by the way, real quickly. Jot it down, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways Inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. And by the way, this is where we get the theological term substitutionary atonement, or sometimes it's called penal substitutionary atonement, where there is a substitute whose blood was shed for you and me, and because the price was paid, we have been forgiven through that sacrifice, amen? So we begin to see uh, the importance of that. One more scripture, I, I, did, I skipped over it, I didn't mean to. Um, this all comes into focus as you start to understand the New Testament, like in Hebrews 9, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there's n- what? No forgiveness of sins or no remission of sins. So that's the chapter, um, Basically what I wanted to do tonight is in a moment we're gonna take communion because I like to give sermons where there's really no application of what we've gotta do. It's good to have those sermons. We should have those sermons. We should have application. But I like to remind us sometimes that Christianity is not so much what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And I think it's important to often, that's why we do it regularly at this church and I'm throwing in an extra one here this month, It's good for us to do communion, to take communion. Because what communion does is it points us to Jesus as our substitute that our sins could be atoned for. His blood poured out. Now, we are going to get to that, but I do have a couple more comments I want to say. To kind of summarize the chapter because as i mentioned you know there's these regulations about blood shedding there's regulations about eating blood but there's there's really an overarching theme and if you missed everything don't miss this there's an overarching theme to this chapter that that is is being reinforced here and this is it what god is declaring in these regulations no shedding of blood except at the tabernacle no other price to pay for atonement except for blood what is god declaring there's one way to have your sins atoned for what he's saying to them is there's one place you can go and there is one price you can pay there is not multiple places you can go to them you can't go in your backyard you can't go to the beach you can't go out there and do your sacrifices no there's one place god would say that you can come and he says and there's not a bunch of prices you can pay You can't just say, well, blood that just seems so gross or I'm like not into sacrifices or whatever. I'll just do this instead. He says, no, there's only one price that is able to be paid. God is declaring in this chapter, there's one way you can have your sins atoned for. It's in one place and it's with one price. That's what he's declaring to them. For them, it was Jerusalem and the blood of these animals. But all of that pointed forward to Jesus, didn't it? Jerusalem zion mount calvary see jesus went to that place and shed his blood there's only one place for us to find atonement for our sins it's in the person of jesus christ he's the only place and he paid the only price the reason i'm bringing this up is not because i don't think you know it i know you know this i'm looking at the crowd i see your faces i know this is almost like christianity 101 i know you know this Here's why I'm bringing it out, though. I'm positive that this offended some of the Israelites who maybe took a more liberal stance and thought, why can't we just do whatever we want to do it? Or why does it always have to be blood? And to this day, this is an offensive message. Speaking of offensive, offensive. How offended do you think the guys were, that huge crowd, huddled around Jesus, hoping for some breakfast? They're in John 6. And Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, in fact, let me read that to you, since you asked. He said, how can this man give his flesh to you? And Jesus said to them, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is the true food, my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, he just keeps saying it. He abides in me and I in him. And the living Father sent me and goes, can you imagine the look on their faces? These are good Jewish boys. And here's this rabbi saying, oh, it offends you that I say I'm the bread of life? Let me add to that, unless you drink my blood, You can't have any life. Now, by the way, he made it very clear in like two or three other places, verse 35, verse 47, verse 63 of that chapter, where it says, if you believe in the Son of Man, you have life. He equated the eating and the drinking to putting your faith, to internalizing it. Just like you can look at a cheeseburger and it looks amazing, it doesn't do you any good unless you assimilate it into your body. Then it does you no good at all. I should come to a different analogy like you see a a bottle of ultra healthy Quai juice company whatever I can't think of a name of one right now but it's prevent you from ever getting sick ever again but burns on the way down and and it's there and it does you no good unless you assimilate it And so that's the analogy he's using eating and drinking as a picture of believing You can talk about God, you can know verses about God, you can come to church, but until you personally put your faith and assimilate that gift by faith into you, you don't have life. That's what he's talking about. He wasn't actually talking about eating flesh. He wasn't talking about communion at that point. He wasn't even talking, he was just using that analogy. It's an an offensive message, and I guess this is what's on my heart in the days that we're living in right now. This is the message of Christianity. Christianity. It's a great message that we can have our sins forgiven, that God left his throne in heaven. For God so loved the world, he, my daughter's in town, she's actually in quarantine right now. She's teaching my son, JJ, a, a memory verse. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now he's, he's repeated it and it says, God gave his only forgotten son, but we're working on that. It's a great message, it's a joyful message, but it's an offensive message because that means that you know, people have to admit that they're sinners and that, there's, that they're wrong and that there's not five different ways, there's one way. And guess what I'm getting at guys is we right now in the culture that we're in have so much pressure on us to capitulate to this relativistic mindset and it's so subtle and it's so easy. And how dare we as Christians say that there's only one absolute way to be saved. The argument comes back and says, how arrogant of you to say that there's an absolute truth. There can't, there's no absolute truth, which by the way is an absolute statement. So it kind of defeats itself. If you say absolutely no truth, you're making an absolute statement. So you're being arrogant and prideful too, right? anybody tracking with me on that okay the point is is that we cannot lump jesus into other gurus into other ways into islam into judaism and guys jesus stands alone he's the only way of salvation and this is one that we do not fold on we don't have to be jerks about it but this is what we have to do when we're telling our friends we have to be we have to stick to this it's going to offend people I believe that what people balk at at Christianity is not so much intellectually driven, it's morally driven. Because it means I have to confess and admit that I'm wrong and I'm a sinner and that I can't save myself and I've got to be in submission to a God and people don't want to do that. We want to be our own gods. But this is our message. It's a great message, but I'm just telling you it's an offensive message and what was really in my heart a couple of days ago when I was studying this is that I think we need to be ready, more ready than ever, to be willing to suffer for this message. We're going to have to suffer if we really believe this. In some way, it's gonna cost you something to really believe this and proclaim it. The, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it it's not our job to make it sound less foolish. It is our job just to get it out, with love and compassion, with a listening ear, with dialogue, yes, but not to compromise the message. Amen? And nobody else is gonna give this message except the church, that's us. Our message is not social justice, we can be on board, or, you know, we can delve into other things, But our main job of the church is not to become Republicans. It's not to do this. It's not to do... Our job as the church is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world to save souls from hell. The rest will take care of... I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in those other things. Don't... Hear me wrong. But I'm saying that's not the main gist of what what we do and who we are. This is the message. Jesus offended a lot of people that day when he said, unless you drink my blood, or eat my body, you, can't, you're not, you won't have life. And it says many of the disciples who were following him stopped following him that day. So much so he turned to his boys and he said, are you gonna go too? And it's as if Jesus was saying, I'll let you go. Are you leaving too? And they didn't totally understand everything, but Peter said, where are we gonna go? You alone have the words of life. Are you gonna be offended at this? Are you you okay with a message that's going to offend people? Let's be firm in our faith, amen? We don't have to be offensive in the way we deliver it, but we need to be firm in it, even if it costs us everything. And the way things are going in this world, it just might someday. I don't mean to be Debbie Downer up here, Debbie's not even my name. (laughs) I just want us to be real about it. Amen. Amen. Well, Austin, would you and Avi, would you just come on up? And what I'd like us to do is just take five minutes, and maybe just prepare our hearts with a song. And what I'd like us to do tonight is reflect and consider that life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement or forgiveness for sin. You are forgiven because the God of the universe left his throne in glory and died as your substitute. He stood in for us, shed his blood. And because of that, if you have received that by faith, if you've eaten that in or drinking that in, so to speak, You have life, amen? Can I make something really clear? We're not coming to communion to get life. We're coming to communion because we have life. And we're remembering that and we're celebrating that. As we're getting our hearts ready and as we're about to sing, I wanna put a plea out to anyone listening or here right now, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe Maybe you've never understood what's the big deal? Why do we have crosses? Why do people sing about Jesus dying on their cross? Because on the cross, That's where God demonstrated how much he loves you. Because you and I have sinned. We have fallen short of God's glory. Jesus never sinned, he was the perfect one. But he stood in front of us and went to that cross that we deserve to go to. And he gave his blood, he poured it out so that our sins could be fully once and for all atoned for. And he raised from the dead And he says to anyone and everyone right now, if you will receive, I've purchased this gift of salvation. There's nothing you can do to purchase it or earn it. I did all the work to get it, and I'd like to give it to you. He will not force that gift of salvation upon you. He just offers it. You have a choice where you can either receive that by faith. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of salvation. Or you can push it away and say, no, I'm good. And tonight, if you've never received the gift of salvation, I want to give you that opportunity right now, okay? Let's just go ahead and bow our heads and our hearts. In your heart right now, if you know you've never really received Christ as your Savior, if you're not sure, I'm going to lead in a prayer, and I want you to pray it, okay? Father in heaven, I acknowledge that you are God and you are holy. I have sinned against you. I could never pay you back. I believe you died for my sin. I believe your blood was spilled for my life. I believe you died and I believe you raised from the dead. I want you to please forgive me of all my sins. I repent and I turn to you right now. Please make me your child come into my life in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, that's called being born again. I didn't do anything, that's the point. He did everything, you received it. But, 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 now see, that's why it's called grace, scandalous. Love to talk to you after the service.